Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I don't know if you ever heard this statement or this phrase. Uh, We describe something as hidden in plain sight hidden in plain sight, right? You've ever heard that phrase? We uh, talk about camouflage, right? And it's the classic dad joke when my kids come out wearing camouflage and I say, I can't see you, you know? I'm a dad and a pastor, so there's extra room for cheesiness in there. But yeah, like camouflage or uh, uh, where's Waldo books, right? Waldo's in there somewhere and you got to find him. We, we describe things that are hidden in plain sight. Like, guys, when your wife tells you to go find something, you go and look, and it's right in front of you, but it's hidden in plain sight, and you can't see it, and that's why she has to go do it, right? But when Jesus came, he was not hidden. Jesus came fully disclosing himself to others, didn't he? Jesus came with no hidden agenda. Jesus came unpacking the fullness of his relationship with the Father God, showing himself to be the Son of God through miracles and marvelous teaching. Jesus didn't hide himself in any way, shape, or form, did he? See, this morning, as Jesus has revealed himself to us in the words of God, we also have this responsibility to respond in faith. And what we're going to see this morning in John chapter 1 is that God's children are born by God-given belief. Let me say that again because I think it's really important for us this morning that God's children are born by God-given belief. We're going to see this in two different phases in these short five verses that we have in front of us. In verses 9 through 11, we're going to see that Jesus was rejected by his own. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And then in verses 12 and 13, All who receive Jesus become children of God. Really two very complementary ideas that, that first of all, those who reject Jesus, that he should have been known by, uh, they reject him. And then secondly, those who do receive him become his children. Let's dive in this morning in John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Read with me there in John chapter 1, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. See, John describes first an idea that he's already presented. He says that Jesus came into the world as a light. That's verse 9, right? The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And it repeats what we saw in verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, John restates himself here. He brings us back into this idea, and he's entering. He's showing us that Jesus is entering this world which he has created. John 1 has all of these ties to Genesis 1. If you remember Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what happens in verse 3 of Genesis 1 is that God creates light, and he said, let there be light. And sure enough, there was light. It was in Genesis 1-3 that he created light. Light entered the world, and this light kind of 
I don't know, it formed the days of God's creation in terms of uh, right after that, God creates the expanse between uh, the waters above and the waters below, and he creates the heavens. And then on day four, he creates two different lights that govern the day and govern the night, and he creates plants, and he creates all these things that rely on the light. See, he's showing us that, that Jesus is like that light that entered into the world. It's central to all creation. Jesus is central to our belief. But John tells us there's a problem here in verses 9 through 11. Specifically, there are two different problems. And both have to do with the rejection of this word from God. Look at verse 10. He was rejected by those he created. Verse 10, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Imagine this. The world that was created by Jesus himself didn't recognize him. The effect of sin was that we no longer knew the one whom we were created to represent. While we were made in God's image, mankind no longer recognizes their namesake. One of Jesus's boldest critiques in his ministry and his life was that he would say that they did, someone didn't know the Father. We have an example in John chapter 8, verse 19. Jesus is having a very sharp conversation with these uh, Jewish people in John chapter 8, and he says, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. This was the ultimate critique to these Jewish people who just took a lot of pride in the idea that they knew the promises of God. They would memorize the Torah. They knew all about God. They understood who God was. And Jesus shows up on the scene. He says, no, 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 you don't know the Father and you don't know me. And because they rejected the Father, they also would reject Jesus. But notice this critique could be applied to all people. That's what John says. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Nobody knew God. Paul tells us something just absolutely condemning. He says that all people, Jew and Gentile alike, are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That even though we know God because his works are clear to see, we exchanged his glory for the images of created things. Romans chapter 1 is telling us all about this rejection of God, that even though we knew God latently in our person, that we knew and understood about him, we chose not to honor him. We chose to live in rebellion to him. But John gets a little bit even more specific in verse 11. Look at what verse 11 says. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It's not just that he was rejected or unknown by the world. He came to the Jews, to these people that should have understood him, should have known about him. When we see his own people, we are immediately reminded that the Israelites were God's chosen people. And so it just happens that this is where Jesus was born. He came to his own, and the descendants of Abraham, those people so familiar with the promises of God, with the name of God, with the prophets of God, rejected him. I've been reading a book called A River of Darkness by Masaji Ishikawa. There's a name. But he writes this book. He was a, uh, a son of a Korean refugee to Japan. So he 
is living in Japan as a Korean descendant, and it's in the 1960s, and after the Korean War, North Korea starts sending out propaganda saying, all of you Koreans should come back to North Korea where life is good, right? We'll give you a free education. We'll give you a good job. It will present to you this utopia. And so he estimates in this book that in the 1960s, 100,000 to 200,000 Koreans who lived in Japan returned to North Korea to live there. And he records the atrocities that happened. When they got there, because they, some of them had Japanese heritage, they were considered what they called hostile, which is actually a caste system. They were the lowest of the caste. They were treated like dirt. See, they came back to their own, and their own didn't receive them. See, the thing we should have known best, the creator God who made us, was unrecognizable to us. I remember I was uh, working out here one day, and uh, through the modern the marvels of modern technology, I get a uh, uh, someone wants to video conference with me, and I don't recognize the phone number. It's not in my address book or anything else. I'm thinking this is probably some kind of prank or someone misdialed my number. And so, sure enough, I hit the video, and a face pops up, and I say, "I don't know you. I don't recognize who you are." And sure enough, it was one of my good friends from college calling me. I just didn't recognize his face. In fact, I'm really bad at recognizing faces. And so there I am in this awkward thing, like, I don't know you. And he's like, Jason, don't hang up. You know, like, anyway, it was funny to me. See, we didn't know God. We didn't recognize God because we have a particular problem. We have sin. We were too busy being God. If you go back to Genesis 3, one of the things that happens is Satan tempts Eve. He says this, he says, for when you eat of the fruit, you will become like him, knowing good and evil. See, sin had blinded our eyes and stopped our ears. We could no longer hear what God spoke. And Paul gives this final assessment of what this has done to us, this sin that lives inside of us. He says that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. worthless. No one does good, not even one. Even now, some of us, our hearts have been so hardened by sin that we cannot hear and cannot see. Recognize that during this season, there's a, a thing that kind of pops up. It's called Christmas Christianity. Christmas Christians. These are those that are, they're not like priesters. You understand a priester is someone who goes to church on Christmas and Easter. And if you're a priester here this morning, that, that has its own issues. But a Christmas Christian always wants the hope of Jesus's birth. They speak confidently and hopefully about the future. They repeat the notion of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And every year they kind of get their batteries recharged through this holiday season. And so they're all about Christmas. But Christmas Christians have no room for Jesus's confrontational life. And they certainly have no use for Jesus's death or resurrection. And so like Ricky Bobby, they just want sweet baby Jesus. Now, that one was funny. Why did you laugh there? 
They just, they want sweet baby Jesus and his prospect of hope. They want Jesus who remains in the manger, who's manageable, controllable, doesn't ask anything of me. That's what sin does, right? Gives a nod toward Jesus, but it denies his lordship over my life, his claims over my righteousness or, or my reliance upon him. Notice what hope Paul or John holds out in verses 12 through 13. All who receive Jesus become children of God. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, verse 9 through 11, we're marked by the, the scandal of not knowing our Creator. Verses 12 through 13 are marked by divine grace. Verses 9 through 11 described an indifference to God, but here John uses one of these most intimate of terms to describe our relationship to God. We're His children. When we believe in Jesus' name, we become God the Father's children. That's an amazing thing for us this morning. In fact, that's interesting that, that John calls us children of God. You know, starting, I think, in February or March, we're going to start to go through the book of Exodus. Exodus is fascinating because it, it starts off with this systematic child, or killing of the children of Israel. Right, uh, Pharaoh thinks that uh, Israel's becoming too plentiful in the land of Egypt, and so he starts throwing babies in the Nile. Of course, God hears from his people. He hears their suffering, and in chapters 3 and 4, he introduces himself to Moses, and listen to what he says to Moses as he's, he's saying, Moses, go tell this to Pharaoh, and he says this, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. This is the God we worship, right? He said, you want to pick on my children? You want to put my children in the Nile? I'm coming after your firstborn. You want to pick on those that I've chosen? Guess what? I'm a God of justice and wrath, and I'm coming for you. God takes his sons, his children, very seriously, doesn't he? What he says in verse 12 is that our belief gains our status as God's children. Notice how John uses these terms, believe and receive, interchangeably. Look at what he says. All who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So the means by which we become God's children is this avenue of belief. It's not sufficient for us to just know facts about Jesus. It's not sufficient for us just to have a few verses memorized, a few vague theological concepts, just a, a vague understanding of this person of Jesus. What John is saying is that we have to believe, we have to trust Many today have a certain level of belief in Jesus, 
right? We, we say, in God we trust. It's written on our dollars and on our coins. We pledge allegiance to the flag that's one nation under God. A belief in God is kind of baked into our sense of nationalism. Even further, like our contemporary notions about God and religion and, and angels and so many other things are described in just what we hear in music and movies and otherwise. Carrie Underwood captioned, captured many of our religious understandings in this statement of Jesus, take the wheel. Or if you're kind of a pop rock person, you can say trains calling all the angels. It's the same concept, right? We need God, as the contemporary Christian says, for the desperate moments. But to receive Jesus is to take him for who he claims to be in our desperation, and in our victories. Claims to be life and light. Verses 4 and 5. He claims to be the resurrection and the life. He's living water. He's not just knowledgeable or wise or good. He is Savior. And anyone who fails to believe that, that we need saving or that Jesus alone provides it isn't really believing in the Jesus who he proclaimed himself to be. Notice what John thir- or 1, verse 13 goes on to say. It's not just about you and I and our, our kind of pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps or willing ourselves into belief. Look at what John says. He says, we weren't born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. We weren't born by blood. Your genealogy has nothing to do with your standing before God. Kids here today, it doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter how righteous your parents are. It doesn't matter what they do, how many hours they serve, who was in ministry, who was it, who was a missionary. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you have faith in Jesus Christ. There's no physical bloodline that could get you entrance into the gates of heaven. There's no DNA test that, if passed, would garner your entrance before God. It's not only that we aren't born by blood, we aren't born by the will of the flesh. That is, you can't self-discipline yourself to be good with God. Some of you here are amazingly self-disciplined. You rise up early and you work late. You have a well-adjusted sense of delayed gratification. But this discipline could never make you good enough for God. In fact, our self-discipline, apart from the Spirit, always serves my flesh more than the spiritual purpose of God. So while your discipline is great for weight loss and for work production, it always fails you in relationship to God. So we weren't born by blood, and we weren't born by the will of the flesh. We weren't born by the will of man. It's not up to any individual here. There's nobody who can get you in. It's not about knowing the right people. There's no parent, government official, or otherwise that can make you right with God. And notice what what John says in verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are born by God. 
Christian, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are not the product of your own spiritual desire. John is abundantly clear here, isn't he? Uh, Jesus will he'll say something later on in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. He'll say that flesh gives birth to flesh. That Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives life to spirit. He's speaking about the spirit of God has to rebirth you, has to regenerate you. And John is, Jesus is using this statement to, to highlight something in Nicodemus' life, saying, you can't be good enough for God. You have to be reborn spiritually. And it's kind of this analogy, right, that acorns come from oak trees and they make oak trees, right? And, and you can't have a mustard seed that turns into an orange tree. If you're going to be spiritually reborn, you cannot do it through the flesh. Society has shown us time and time again, it's more and more disinterested in knowing God. Society's running headlong toward death and destruction. Just consider our American society for a second. They push further and further into death, destruction, mutilation, abandonment, loneliness, alienation, and isolation. And they call it liberation, freedom, independence, and autonomy. This is the sinful heart at work. The more we say, I can do it on my own, the further we get from God's purpose. See, what we need more than anything is to be born of God. In fact, this is a distinction of Christian faith. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Tim Chester. He's a Brit across the pond, as you will. But he uses this kind of gospel paradigm, and it's on the screen in front of us. If you're familiar with kind of a gospel presentation that would follow this paradigm of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, we see that we are created in God's image to, to be with God, in union with God. But through our sin, we were separated from God, kicked out of the garden, and, and actually promised death because of our sin. But the redemption that God provides is that Jesus came into the world living a perfectly righteous life, dying a sinless death, and raising in power over sin and death, and he's given that to all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So that the consummation is that my hope is that I would actually be in God's presence for all eternity, that I would have restored union with Christ. What Chester says here is there's this basic format of the gospel, and everyone in all creation is filling in the blanks, as it were. They have a sense of creation. What, what's my identity? They have a sense of the fall. What's my, my problem? What's the redemption? What, what's my solution? Consummation, what's my ultimate hope? Let me give you a, full, a few examples that might help fill this out. There's a materialistic happiness. The gospel of materialistic happiness says in creation, I was meant to enjoy the best the world has to offer. But my problem is that I have limited financial resources that don't allow me to access the best of the world. And so the redemption comes through hard work and diligence when I earn and enough to satisfy my need for material things. And in consummation, my hope 
is that I can have all I've ever wanted, right? Let's do another one. You go to the baseball game with your kids. You see the baseball dad who's screaming at their child out there. Let's talk about his gospel. His gospel is my identity is I was made to receive honor from others for my athletic accomplishments. And the fall is that I missed my opportunity to be great. And so the redemption is that this child of mine can work hard to achieve the success that I never had. And the consummation is I can be honored in my son's accomplishments or my daughter's accomplishments. See, the thing that stands out to me when we go through this exercise is every time we get to redemption, outside of the work of Christ, we're always inserting something we have to do. We're always redeeming ourselves. We're always proving ourselves to one another or to God. Always trying to insert my work, trying to do something extra, do something more. Every worldview outside of Christianity sees redemption as something I must accomplish to receive fulfillment. Only Christianity trusts in someone else to redeem me. But what John is telling us this morning, that by God's work, by God's act, we're made children of God. We become God's children based upon our belief. Belief that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, took our sin upon himself at Calvary. He bore that punishment that we deserved in our sinfulness, that he went into the grave for three days, died our death, and was raised to new life in victory over sin and death. That's the only means by which we become God's children. Listen, if you set out to make yourself good enough for God, you'll never succeed. If you set out to make yourself good enough for someone else, you probably won't succeed either. You can work your fingers down to the bone. You can try and try and try and try again, and you will always fall short. So, Christian, what we need to do this morning is we need to push, not just for understanding, but for belief. I want to ask you this morning to push for belief, not just understanding. We have this way of going about things, don't we? We, we, we kind of run in these kind of Christian circles, and we can go about things. We say, I know my good Christian theology. I, I've memorized my, my VBS verses from 20 years ago. I do all these kind of Christian things, and, and we kind of, kind of traffic in these patterns of Christian things we might never cross paths with Jesus. Comprehension and confidence are two very different things. Just consider an analogy. You go hiking or whatever, and you come upon a bridge that is going to walk over a chasm, and it's, it's, you know, 50 feet down. If you fall off of this bridge or this bridge does not sustain you, you will die. It's one thing to comprehend that the bridge will work. It is another thing to step out onto the bridge, to trust the bridge to bear your weight. Comprehension and confidence are two very different things. See, the distinction comes in applied trust. Saving faith 
is applied trust in Jesus Christ. It's not just content to know a few facts about Jesus, to vaguely pray some prayers before you eat your dinner. It's confidence that Jesus will sustain me and keep me by His grace. That when I stand before the Lord of heaven and He's seen everything I've done, that His blood will be sufficient to pay for all of the wrongs that I've accomplished. Applied faith in Jesus, it looks as a child, it looks for a wife who, who will make you more like Christ. It goes to work looking for opportunities to speak of Jesus' name. It, it wants to see the kingdom established. And when you're raising your kids, you want them to become missionaries and, and go out to other people groups to see the kingdom of God invested in. And so this morning, my word to you is to push toward confidence, not just comprehension. This belief that you have in Jesus should translate to particular responses, not because the responses save you themselves, but it, it evidences or manifests this life and trust in Jesus Christ. To know God, to be God's child, actually shapes and forms the way we live our life. It changes the trajectory of what we set ourselves toward. See, our belief in Christ shows its vitality in the patterns of my living. Comprehension isn't enough. Conviction is the key. In closing, I want to tell a story about John and Charles Wesley and the Moravian Brethren. You might be familiar with the names John and Charles Wesley. They were at Oxford in England, and they started this thing called the Holiness Club, and, and they were kind of trying to do religion and do uh, kind of a very religious thing without understanding the gospel. Uh, they were motivated toward holiness. That's why they talked about the holiness club. They were disciplined and filled with effort. In fact, their religious work was marked by a kind of legalism, we might say today. Well, what happens is that John and Charles Wesley kind of cross the Atlantic Ocean and come and do some ministry in the Americas. They minister in the United States and uh, in crossing the ocean, they actually are introduced to a group of people called the Moravian Brethren. The Moravian Brethren were, were um, this heartfelt, deep, resonating people with the gospel. Moravian Brethren missionaries, when they would go off to an, a foreign land, they would pack all of their belongings in their casket and saying, I'm going to go and die for the work of the gospel. These people had a, a deep understanding of the gospel. And John Yates describes that uh, the Wesley's interaction in the, with the Moravians brought a rich understanding of grace in the gospel. You're familiar with the uh, Wesleyan hymn, right? Amazing love, how can it be? It, John Wesley describes, or Charles Wesley describes in that hymn, this notion that his chains fall off, that he's set free in the goodness of God in Christ. And so what happens is that John and Charles Wesley, in the midst of doing Christian ministry, actually discover themselves not to be Christian. They have a notion of who Jesus is and their responsibility to him, but they have no notion of saving faith and no reliance 
upon it. They're trying to work out their salvation on their own. Wesley's self-reliance and holiness was contrary to the claims of the gospel. See, when we come to Christ, you and I abandon all other hopes, don't we? We say, I've got no other hope than the righteousness of Jesus. We put on Christ like a life preserver, like a parachute for someone who's jumping out of a plane. It is the only means by which we will survive. See, the true recognition is I have no hope other than the hope I have in Jesus Christ. He is everything to us. I wonder if we might cultivate that kind of understanding. We might turn to Christ in all things. We might find him sufficient in all things. Whether it's our grades or whether it's our our finances or our work situation, we might turn in hope to Christ. We might bring our cares and concerns to our Heavenly Father and trust Him and Him alone with our difficulties. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now that You would bring about a faith that is pleasing to You. We recognize that we're not born by by the will of the flesh, not born by blood, not born by the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but you, Father, have given us birth through belief. So help us to believe. Lord, strip us of our American self-reliance. Make us trusting in Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.